Our New Testament reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 22. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 21. If you would like to turn to that in your Bible, or you can look at the Scripture sheet in front of you. Revelation chapter 22, 6 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Before we look at this last, the last words of Jesus in Revelation. Let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests. We're a congregation of priests. 
It's not just the minister or the elders or deacons that are priests. Jesus called us all to be priests in his word. And the priest carries the people around him or her before the throne in prayer. Father, week after week we've prayed in this room and we've asked as your priest and you've heard and you've healed and you've helped and you've comforted. Thank you, our Father. We pray again this morning for Phil and Sally Halley. Father, meet their needs. Bless Sally as she cares for Phil. We pray that, Father, you would restore movement in his limbs. Father, strengthen his body. Most of all, strengthen his heart and soul in Christ. Father, we pray this morning for Jennifer Post again that you would bless her, bless her family as they grieve over the loss of her father. We pray, Father, for Michelle Cruz as you called her mother home this week in Jackson. We pray that you would bless that family all that family. Our Father, we pray for the Whitsitt family. Uh, we pray for Father Liz McEwen as she grieves over the death of, of her mother. We thank you that we speak of Michelle's mom. We speak of Liz's mom. It's not death. Father, you've called them home. They're at home with you now. Oh, Father, comfort these families. We pray as we open your word now that you would teach us. Father, you know that this is not empty rhetoric on my part. It's not something said is just a religious cliche. Father, I know, and you know that I know, and I believe these people know, that I cannot teach, I cannot preach, so that it will change anyone's heart or make any lasting difference. Our Father, we turn to you, and we ask you to teach us. It is only then that we will be changed, that we'll grow in Christ or changed. Maybe some of us for the first time. But oh, Father, when we leave here in a few minutes, may we know we have heard you speak. That's our prayer. We're your children, and we're asking you, oh, Father. Teach us. Tell us the story again. One more time. For the glory of your son, we pray. Amen. The last words of Jesus, part two. We saw three weeks ago that John had finished the story in Revelation with verse 5 of chapter 22. 
but he does not lay down his quill. He writes an epilogue. Epilogues were common in the letters and books of John's day. They're still today common in letters and books. Epi is the Greek word, comes from the Greek, or is the Greek word meaning after. Log comes from logos, which means word. It's an after word. The story has been told. It's over. But instead of ending with verse 5, he writes this after word. This epilogue has two themes. Three weeks ago, we looked at the first theme. The significance of the book is the first theme. That's what we talked about. Six times the book is mentioned. Six times. Think about that. In this brief epilogue, six times the book is mentioned. What book? The book that John has just recorded. The book revealing the story of Jesus in glory. Since this is the last book of all of Scripture, we saw that the Holy Spirit meant for these words to also apply to all of Scripture, not just to Revelation. The epilogue tells us, told us, or tells us three truths about the book. I'm sure all of you remember them. First, that the book is trustworthy and true. Trust it. Secondly, the book is relevant to this time. Do not seal it up. Read it. Study it. Learn it. Thirdly, the book is not ours. It's God's book. Do not dare to add or take away from its content. Now, that was the message three weeks ago. The second theme of the epilogue is how then should we live in response to the story of Revelation? In response to the story of Jesus in glory from his ascension to his return. How should we respond to the reality, the coming reality of the return of Christ? This morning, that's our subject and we will come immediately to it. First, how should we live? John tells us right there. He says, stay focused on the worship of God. Look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Now you may be thinking, that sounds familiar. Well, it should sound familiar because John is referring back to a scene, an action that took place earlier. We read about it in chapter 19. The angel and John in chapter 19, this is, heaven was in the midst of this great worship. Hallelujahs. A great party. They were actually watching the marriage supper of the Lamb. And these choirs praising God. It was a powerful scene. And then right at the end of that scene. As they look. 
we read Revelation 19, 9. Look at it. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Now, what had happened? John was just overwhelmed with the worship that he was seeing and with the greatness of this angel. He fell down at the angel's feet to worship him. Now, what was the angel's response? Don't you dare do that. He was horrified. The translation does not carry the weight of the angel's words. He went on. I'm a mere creature. I'm not the creator. You worship God. Now here in Revelation 22, when John has finished the story, as John gives his last instructions to the church, he retells, he recounts that scene. It doesn't happen again. He just recounts it. Remember in Hebrew writing, we've said this over and over, when the author, when the Hebrew author wanted to emphasize something, what did he do? He repeated it. Well, John had recorded the scene just three chapters earlier. But here, he repeats it. He's telling us in the epilogue, this is terribly, terribly significant. In all that you do, first and foremost, you Worship God. Folks, the church is constantly, and I believe John understood this, the church is constantly tempted to emphasize other actions and duties above worship. We see it in every age, in every setting. The church will stress evangelism over worship. Evangelism is good. And the church sometimes stresses it over worship. The church will stress Christian education over worship. The church will stress feeding the hungry and helping the poor over worship. The church will stress you loving your neighbor and your brother over worship. The church will stress racial equality over worship. All of those things are vital actions inside the church. But all of these actions grow out of our worship. Our worship drives those activities. Those actions do not give birth to worship. Worship gives birth to those actions. Think about it. We're going to do it in a few minutes after the benediction. We'll leave our worship on the Lord's day and sail out to be salt and light out in the world. Where does that come from? It comes from our worship. You know why? Do you know why we are distracted from the central activity of worship? It's because we're thinking like the world thinks. It's because we're taking our directions from the world. We can go to the world and talk about feeding the hungry 
and the world will say, I'm with you. We can go to the world and talk about supporting the poor. I'm with you. We can go to the world and talk about building institutions for education. I'm there. I'll help you. We talk about helping widows and children and orphans. I'm with you. The world will join us. Nurturing racial equality. Oh, we're into that. But I'll tell you, the world is not, and you know this, the world is not into worship. They see this as a gigantic waste of time. It doesn't make sense to them. We say to the world, let's go worship. Let's go meet with God. Let's express our love and adoration. Nope. Not into that. I really don't understand why you do that. I've had honest non-Christians say that to me over and over and over again. In the first, very first message on Revelation that we had at Christ's covenant, it was May 8th of last year. We looked into the major themes and characteristics of the book of Revelation. Worship was one of those major themes, one of the major subjects. I went back and looked at it this week, went through the whole book. In nine chapters, nine chapters contain significant visions of the worship taking place in glory. Now, one chapter would have been enough. Nine chapters. So the Apostle John was sitting in that chair, and we had a question and answer period. We say, what should we have learned from the book of Revelation? John would say, I told you an epilogue. Worship God. Stay focused on the worship of God. Secondly, we see in the epilogue that John says, stay focused on your redemption through the blood of Christ. Look at verse 13. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Again, this is a reference to something he said earlier in Revelation. It's found in Revelation chapter 7. John has been observing the worship of the saints in glory in chapter 7. They're worshiping, the saints are worshiping with the angels, with the four living creatures, with the 24 elders. And we read this, Revelation 7, 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these? Talking about the people, who are these? Clothed in white robes and from where they have come. And John says to him, sir, you know. And so he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So in Revelation 22, 14, he returns to that subject. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Well, where have they washed their robes? In the blood of the Lamb. Why are their robes white? They're cleansed. They're not marred by filth and sin. Why not? Why aren't they? The robes have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. 
I keep coming back to this. Do you realize how unique in all of God's creation you are? In heaven, no one else will sing of being washed in the blood of the Lamb. The angels won't sing that hymn. We sing hymns of redemption, and we'll sing those hymns for a million years, but the rest of heaven cannot sing. They'll sing and rejoice with us, but they were not fallen. They were not filthy in sin. They did not need redemption. Last week, last week we looked at a noble man of character named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin. He declared his love for Jesus publicly when he requested Pilate to let him take the body of Jesus from the cross and bury it. Now here is the man who stood at that dark hour. For the first time, he made his love for Christ public. He had been secret before that. Now here's the man that stood at that dark hour. What a great legacy. Throughout the last 2,000 years, Joseph of Arimathea has been known as the man who lovingly supplied a tomb for the body of Jesus. Now, you know what the common response to that is? You've heard it before, said about other people. The common response is, now that man will be in heaven. And I wanted to tell you last week at the end of the message, and I couldn't because I knew I was going not, I mean, three weeks ago, I wanted to tell you at the end of that message. And I couldn't. I had to save it for today. Joseph of Arimathea will not be saved because of his burial of Jesus and his care for the body of Jesus. Joseph was saved by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus. There's only one way his robe was made white, and it was by the blood of the Lamb. And there's only one way your robe will be made white. By the blood of the Lamb. Stay focused on the worship of God. Stay focused on your redemption by the blood of Jesus. Thirdly, stay focused on calling the world to Christ. I love this. Now, when we read, some commentators think, now, what I'm about to read you, we're saying, come, to come. We're, we're saying to Jesus, you come, you come. And actually, that's what the Jesus kept saying, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon. But that's not, this is not what John is saying. Let's read it. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. You've got to love this. Here is the church in the midst of a fallen, sinful world. And what is her posture? What's the posture of Christ's covenant reformed church? 
What should we be saying to the world? Come. Notice it is the Holy Spirit and the bride calling the world to come. And it is an individual thing. He says, let the one who hears, not just the prophets, not just the preachers, not just the church as a body, but the one who hears. Are you hearing? Just let you say, come, you come, you say, come to the world. And then he ends it and let the one who is thirsty, you let the one who is thirsty. You don't say to the ones thirsty coming in the door, you don't belong here. You're a sinner. You say, come, come. All through the gospels, we see Jesus calling the world to himself. Look at Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you, imagine Jesus saying this, imagine being in the crowd and Jesus saying this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Look at John seven thirty seven. on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, he shouted this. There are thousands of people there. He shouted this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That is what Jesus is now saying in this world. Well, how is he saying it in the world? He's not actually standing here physically saying it like he did when he was here. So how is he saying it? Through the church and through our individual lives. It's the message that must emanate from Christ's covenant reformed church. You come to Jesus. That's what, we, that's what we're saying to Memphis. That's what we're saying to Shelby County. That's what we're saying to the Mid-South. You come to Jesus. Last week we celebrated the Lord's Supper. It's a beautiful scene. I often say something to Brian about it. You see, you come out of here and you come down the aisle and you're partaking of the bread and wine. Congregation of people coming, coming to Jesus. Every Sunday this morning you left your homes your neighbor says, hey, where are you headed? You know, it's a good thing. Instead of just saying, well, I'm going to church. Say, I'm going to meet with Jesus. That's where I'm headed. Come along. As Christians, our lives should shout to the world, come to Jesus. Now, we want to get away from this because we want to say, well, that's what Christ's covenant is about. That's what the preacher's about. That's what the whole church is about. I, I don't do that. Well, shame on you. Because John says here that let the one who hears say to the world, come. I lived under this all week long, just asking the question, and now I'm going to ask it of you. What does your life say to the world around you? You know non-Christians around you all around us, does your life say to them, you come to Jesus? Does it? Don't you go pin it on Christ's covenant and say, well, no, 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 Christ, Christ, no. 
Christ's covenant is supposed to say it in the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit in you? Yes. Well, he says, let the one who hears with the Holy Spirit in his life say, come. And that hurt as I looked at my own life. Joseph Hart wrote a hymn in 1759. We're going to learn this hymn in the future. Uh, it's in our hymn book. But just listen to the words of it for a moment. Come, ye needy, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. Now, you would be singing this. When we sing this, we will sing it individually. Come, ye needy, come and welcome. Come, God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. Without money, without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, this he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. Lo, the incarnate God ascended pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Is that what your life is saying to the world around you? John says, what's our response to Revelation? What's our response to the second coming of Jesus? Stay focused on the worship of God. Stay focused on your redemption by the blood of Jesus. Stay focused on calling the world to Christ. Finally, John says, stay focused on the return of Christ. Look at verse 7. And behold, I'm coming soon. Look at verse 12. Behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 20, surely I am coming soon. Three times in this epilogue, in this brief epilogue, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Now, we're prone to argue at this point. Jesus, it's been two millennia since you said that, and you still haven't returned. All right, Jesus says to us, who am I? Jesus, you're the son of God from eternity. Well, his perspective is a bit different than ours when it comes to dealing with time. He's coming from eternity. Eons, in contrast... I was born September the 8th, 1944. 2,000 years seems like a long time to me. When you're eternal, 2,000 years is just a day or two. Peter spoke about this. He said that people will say, it's been so long. Where's the return that he promised? Peter writes about this in 2 Peter. Listen to Peter's answer. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
And Jesus, what does Peter say? Jesus is speaking from his own perspective. However, from our perspective, we can also say he's coming soon. If we had been in the first century from our perspective, we could have said he's coming soon. Seven, eight, or nine decades come to pass, and our lives are over here. Ask any older person. Ask me about the brevity of life. Some of you calculated, what? how old is John? 1944. 79 years almost. 79 years in September. And I'll tell you, it seems like seven, not 79. I often say to a mom and dad of their five-year-old, in several months, he or she will be graduating from high school. In just a year or so, he or she will be having your grandchildren. I cannot believe how fast my children grew into adults and married. It seems like a blur. At 79, I know that I will soon be called home. I will be in glory with Christ. And you know what the next great event after that will be for me? is his return. And I think I'll have a different perspective. And I will be able to say, yes, children, yes, grandchildren, yes, great-grandchildren, he's coming soon. But the question still remains. So how can we be focused on the return of Christ? The Old Testament church looked forward and waited for the arrival of the Messiah. It became a part of their ethos. They had a phrase. They said, when Messiah comes, when Messiah comes, when Messiah comes. It was just a phrase in Israel. The older lady would say, when Messiah comes, the rabbi would say, when Messiah comes. They would all say in the synagogue, when Messiah comes. Constantly heard through the centuries. But think about it. His arrival was not immediately obvious. An unknown virgin conceived and gave birth. The ministry and rule of the Messiah was not immediately world-changing. It was not immediately catastrophic to the evil of mankind. Well, that was at his first coming. The return of Christ in Revelation will be instantly recognizable. Instantly. It will be catastrophic to all sin and all evil. A final judgment will bring a perfect justice and sin and evil will be eradicated. And creation will quite suddenly go into a recreation. So how do we get ready for that? How, how do we handle that? Down in this mundane, I mean, we're going to get up and go to work tomorrow morning in different places. Do we wake up daily striving to be excited that Jesus may return today? Do we get up, I've heard ministers say this, do we get up every day and say, well, today may be the day. That's 
It's all right to do that. But I was reading from C.S. Lewis this week in a sermon he preached called The World's Last Night. And I believe with Lewis that that kind of constant excitement about the coming of Jesus is just quite impossible. But Jesus did say three times in the epilogue, I'm coming soon. So how, what's he want us to do? We've already answered the question. Have you been listening to this message? We've answered the question. How do we respond to revelation? How do we respond to the second coming? One, we remain focused on the worship of God. He is the center of our lives and our calling every day. We remain focused on the redemption through the blood of Christ. The awful storm of judgment that's coming, that storm has already fallen in judgment on Jesus in our stead. How can we stand up in that day? We can say with Paul, who can bring a charge? Christ has died. And then we will stay focused on the calling of the world to Christ. Everything in our lives should be saying to our children, beginning inside of our house, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. You'll be saying to our neighbors, you need Jesus. You and the Holy Spirit this morning and this week should be saying, come to Jesus. Focusing on the return of Christ brings about that kind of life. Now, Jesus did not give us a date and a time. People say to me, well, do you think he's coming soon? I have no idea. People have made enormous mistakes. They're trying to say, I know when he's coming. Well, you're better than Jesus because Jesus didn't. He just said, I'm coming. Stay focused on the worship. Stay focused on redemption through the blood of Christ. Stay focused on calling the world to Jesus, pushing back the darkness. And you'll be ready for the day of his return, whenever it is. C.S. Lewis said it this way in speaking in his book, The World's Last Night. This is the way he closed the message. Happy are those whom it finds, it's a second coming, happy are those whom it finds laboring in their vocations, whether they were merely going out to feed the pigs or laying good plans to deliver humanity a hundred years hence from some great evil. The curtain has fallen Those pigs will never be, in fact, fed. The great campaign against white slavery or governmental tyranny will never, in fact, proceed to victory. No matter. You were at your post when the inspection came. You want to be at your post? Stay focused on the worship of God. Pray for Christ's covenant that this church will tenaciously stay focused. Worship! Everything else comes out of our worship. Stay focused on your redemption through the blood of Jesus. And stay focused on calling the world around you to Jesus.
and you'll be at your post when he returns. And so ends the book of Revelation. There's only one hymn to sing. 691, it is well with my soul.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.